Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Our last time together, we looked at Martin Luther and John Calvin and these two pillars of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. This time, we're moving over to Switzerland to consider Ulrich Zwingli and his role in igniting the Swiss Reformation in Zurich right around the same time. Also, we'll find out about the Swiss Brethren, a sect of Anabaptists, really the beginning point for the Anabaptist movement, including Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock, three trailblazers in that movement. Without any further introduction, here now is lecture three in, in my History of Christianity class called 500, covering church history from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen, at podcast 118, Zwingli and the Swiss Anabaptists. I'm very excited about this topic and this part of the Reformation. I don't, I don't think I adequately defined the word Reformation last time, but Reformation is the movement that Martin Luther started in 1517 that began to challenge everything about Christianity, from its beliefs to its practices. Well, maybe not everything, but a lot of it. And what the, the goal of the Reformation was to take the Christianity of the time, medieval Catholicism, and reform it based on the Bible. Okay, so to reshape or change Christianity to conform it more to what the Bible says rather than what was commonly practiced. And so tonight we're talking about, at least in the first half, Switzerland. And the first man up is Ulrich Zwingli. And then I'm going to talk about the Swiss brethren. The three Swiss brethren I want to talk about are Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock. So that's my outline for tonight. Ulrich Zwingli is up first, and then these three, in particular, Swiss brethren that were all in fellowship with Ulrich Zwingli until they split apart. And I can't make these names sound familiar to you. I know they're all probably very strange-sounding and foreign, but hopefully by the, by the end of this, they will be uh, words that you might just throw around, just like... Uh, uh, any other person's name that you're familiar with. Ulrich Zwingli was a university-educated man. He was a very, came from a very influential family in Switzerland. He was influenced by humanism in general and Erasmus in particular. You remember Desiderius Erasmus. He was the scholarly person who brought the Greek New Testament to the printing press and got it published so that people could have the Greek New Testament. And he also was very influential in writing books and in promoting this idea ad fontes, which means to the sources. And so Ulrich was uh, influenced by Erasmus. And so I have a, uh, a quote for you that I got out of one of my books here, the European Reformations book. And I'd like to read it with you because it, it'll kind of give us quick access to some of the main issues with Swingley. And uh, so let's, let's go to that in your notes. Zwingli's reputation for biblical preaching led to his nomination for the post of people's priest at the Great Minster in Zurich in 1518. 
So that would be a very prestigious position. Detractors raise the issue of Zwingli's womanizing. Wait, hold on a second. Just pause it right there, okay? The first line said he's being nominated for a prestigious position as the people's priest in a major city, Zurich, okay? And yet, he's being accused of womanizing. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you are a Catholic priest, should you be womanizing? Okay, no. Swingley responded, and check out his response to the rumor that he had, sedu the rumor was that he had seduced the daughter of an influential citizen. So he admitted his struggle with sexual temptations, but denied both the woman's purity and her father's influence. So rather than say, I never touched the woman, he said, well, yeah, I touched the woman, but she's not, she wasn't pure, and her dad wasn't all that influential anyhow. So the, the accusation was, he had seduced a daughter of an influential citizen. He's like, I didn't seduce her, and her dad's not influential. Uh, so in other words, he did, <laughs> he did get involved there. Uh, some, and then he goes on. These are Zwingli's own, word, own words. Some three years ago, I firmly resolved not to touch a woman. I succeeded poorly in this, however. In Glarus, I kept my resolution about six months. Oh, that's very good, Zwingli. In Ansiedeln, about a year. That girl was a virgin during the day and a woman at night. She was such a day virgin, however, that everyone in Ansiedeln knew exactly her role. She had affairs with many men, finally with me. Or let me say it better, she seduced me with more than flattering words. This is Zwingli's defense. The charge of immorality was finally ineffective since the other priest vying for the post lived openly in concubinage and had six children. Just to give you a perspective of what was going on for this prestigious position as the, uh, the, the people's priest in Zurich, you have Zwingli who is messing around with this, this woman of the night, so to speak, and then you have the other priest who is living, concubinage means she is his concubine. She's a, a live-in girlfriend that he, he, and priests aren't allowed to marry, right? Because medieval Catholicism said no, no marriage for priests. And so Zwingli won, won the job. In light of this specific example and the generally widespread practice of priestly concubinage in the late Middle Ages, it is not surprising that one of the first reforms initiated in the Swiss Reformation was the right of the clergy to marry. Only months after the affair of the sausages, we'll get to the affair of the sausages, Zwingli then, living with the widow, Anna Reinhardt, led ten other Swiss priests in a petition to the Bishop of Constance to allow priests to marry or at least wink at their marriages. The priest signing this petition declared that chastity is a rare gift of God and that they hadn't received it. <laughs> Zwingli married Anna in a public ceremony in 1524, shortly before the birth of their first child. In 1525, the Zurich magistrates instituted a marriage ordinance mandating clergy living in concubinage either to end the relationship or to marry. So that would be a reform, wouldn't it? The old practice was no priests are allowed to marry. So the priests who couldn't help themselves had living girlfriends. So they were following the letter of the law. They weren't married, but they're living in sin. And so the reform that the, the Swiss Christians decided to bring about was, hey, let's make a new rule. 
you either marry the girl or you end the relationship. And so priests are allowed to marry. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. So 1519, Ulrich Zwingli moves to Zurich. He takes over this prestigious position, and he, he hits the church, and he starts preaching from his own text. He doesn't use the, the approved church uh, lectionary or the, the order of scriptures to preach from. He's preaching from what he thinks is right, and he starts Bible study groups. He wants everything to be judged by the standard of Scripture. Now, what year did Martin Luther tack his 95 theses on the church door? Does anybody remember? 1517. Very good. So this is two years after that. Zwingli is saying similar things to Luther in a different country. Later on, when, when they, they became aware of each other, Zwingli insists that he had no idea that Luther was doing this too until later on. Okay, so we have multiple people starting to really challenge and, and get away with it, not get burned at the stake, although there'll be plenty of burning at the stake tonight. He wanted everything to be judged by the standard of Scripture. And then in 1519, a plague swept through Zurich, and at least one in four people died. Could you imagine that? That's at every two tables, one person would die in this room. All who could afford it left the city. And Zwingli decided to stay and minister to the people, which is pretty impressive, right? Not only that, he caught the plague, and he almost died himself, and then he recovered. So he, he's a, a man of some serious character in, in this regard. In 1522, he rebelled against fasting during Lent, and that's the affair of the sausages. Okay, so he... He advocates that, he's that you're allowed to eat meat during the 40 days before Easter, the period we call Lent, that it's a matter of conscience because, again, what is he doing? He's going by the book, not by the tradition, not by the creed, not by the Pope, but by the Bible. And the Bible never mentions Lent and never says you can't eat meat. So they start eating meat. I have already mentioned he marries... Anna Reinhardt in 1524, and uh, in 1523, just before that, a year before that, he has a, a public disputation, a public debate against a Catholic representative. And he has that debate in German, not in Latin, so that people can understand it. And he, he said, the rule is the decision is going to be judged by scripture, not tradition. 600 people show up, which back in those days is a big crowd. And they affirmed that salvation is by grace alone and the full authority of Scripture. He rejected the Pope, the Mass, good works for salvation, intercession of saints, monastic orders, celibate clergy, penance, and purgatory. So that's a lot of the system that Ulrich Zwingli is challenging here. In 1525, they passed the law to get married, and he also abolishes the Mass, and they replace it with uh, more what we would call standard communion or an evangelical communion service. When he heard of Luther's debate with Eck, he rejoiced and began to read Luther, and he insisted his thoughts were independent from Luther. And in 1529, we have this, this moment that we call the Marburg Colloquy. The Marburg Colloquy. Colloquy is a a council, a conversation, <laughs> just a fancy word for 
talk together, literally. And uh, I don't know if you can't really see that too well. It's an old painting, but you've got Luther there, and you've got Ulrich Zwingli, and they're, ar they're arguing back and forth, and they have 15 points, 15 doctrinal points. And they end up agreeing on 14 of the 15 doctrinal points. But when it comes to the one subject of the Eucharist, communion, Luther is insistent. And I heard somewhere, I haven't fact-checked this, that Luther actually took off his shoe and started hitting the table, insisting that it says, this is my body. Because Luther believed in the real presence. He believed in what, what we call consubstantiation. It's, it's similar to transubstantiation, but it's the idea that the bread somehow is Christ's flesh. Not represents it, but is it. Whereas Ulrich Zwingli is saying, no, it's not actually Christ's flesh. Christ is in heaven. This is a piece of bread. It symbolizes Christ's flesh. Okay, it's all a matter of what does the word is mean when Jesus says, this is my body. And they end up disagreeing, and they never unite the movement. <laughs> they break it off there. They each go back in a, to their own places in a huff. And so Zwingli ends his days as a warrior. He's also a soldier. I, I forgot to mention that. Switzerland was made up of provinces that they, that they call cantons. And each of the cantons would be either uh, agreeing with Ulrich Zwingli and adopting a Protestant mindset and getting rid of a lot of these Catholic ideas, or they would be sticking with the old Catholic ideas. And so Ulrich Zwingli is trying to get his ideas to spread, and also he's, he's, not, he's not at all above using the sword to get that done. And so he has an alliance of Protestant cantons that blockade the Catholic cantons to prevent food from getting in. And so they responded by attacking, and so Zwingli went out armed, and he ended up dying in battle. He was seriously wounded and left on the battlefield, but when the Catholic forces recognized him, they killed him, and they cut him into four pieces, they quartered him, and burned the parts with dung, so nothing of Zwingli would inspire future protesters, also called Protestants, protesters, Protestants. That's how Zwingli ended. We're not, we're not done talking about Zwingli, but that's just a, a, a sketch of his life. We need to talk about Conrad Grable now. So he was born in the 1490s. A lot of these guys were born in the 1490s going forward here. I don't know why that is. It just kind of happened that way. So anyhow, Conrad Grable was a Swiss merchant. His dad was a Swiss merchant and a councilman. He was university educated. The Grable came from a, a very good family, just like Ulrich Zwingli. Came from a very good family, kind of aristocratic. He went to a lot of the best universities in Europe. He studied uh, under a noted humanist, and he went to all these different universities, University of Basel, University of Vienna, University of Paris. And what he did is he studied hard, and he played hard. He got in a lot of fights, a lot of brawls, and caused a lot of trouble with a wild lifestyle. And then in 1521, he came to Zurich, because he actually got kicked out of school, and started studying under Ulrich Zwingli. And when he was with Zwingli, Grable was studying the Greek classics, the Latin Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, and the Greek New Testament. So they're, they're, they're doing like intensive, scholarly, difficult languages. Greek classics are, are very hard. I've studied some myself, and they are just, 
It's like beating your head against a brick wall. I mean, it doesn't really seem to do any good. Anyhow, in 1522, Grable has a conversion that dramatically changes his life. And he starts to earnestly support the reforms of Zwingli. And he's like, yeah, we've got to get back to the Bible. Why do you think he would be so zealous for getting back to the Bible? He's studying it in Hebrew. He's studying it in Greek. I mean, these people are, are, are real Bible people that are not, they're not even happy just to read it in Latin, which would have been a chore because that's not even their first language. They're reading it in these other languages and um, judging everything by Scripture. And then in 1523, something happened. There was a disputation where Zwingli took on uh, this idea of the Mass. And Zwingli challenged the Mass, which is the idea that in the Sunday worship service, or whenever it was performed, Christ's body and blood are given as a sacrifice to God. And that it literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ and so on. And so, at this time, Zwingli challenges this publicly. And what ends up happening, so that's in 1523, what ends up happening is the city council pe people, they're just like, we're not really comfortable getting rid of the Mass yet. Let's just keep it the way it is. We agree with you, Zwingli, that your arguments are very convincing, but we're not ready to get rid of it yet, so let's keep it as it is, and over time we'll phase it out. And Zwingli said, well, that sounds, that sounds okay to me. Let's just keep the Mass in place, even though we know it's wrong, and then we'll, we'll phase it out. And then by 1525, they had gotten rid of it. Conrad Grable was a bit less uh, political-minded. For him, he's like, well, if you know it's wrong, why do you keep doing it? It doesn't make any sense. And so Conrad Grable and a couple of these other guys, Felix Mons and George Blaurock, said, we can't go with you anymore on this, Ulrich. We can't go celebrate a Mass when we all agree that it's wrong. And so... They were very disappointed with that, and I, I think I have a quote. Do I have a quote for you here? He, Zwingli, continued to defend the principle of the sole authority of Scripture. In practice, he followed the wishes of the council. Okay, did you catch that? So Zwingli continued to defend the principle of the sole authority of Scripture, but in practice, what's he doing? He's following the wishes of the human council. So he's saying Scriptures are standard, but he's doing what the government tells him to do thus virtually committing the implementation of the reform to the civil government. This was a grievous blow to many of Zwingli's friends, and although some of them, including Grable, may have yearned for a regenerate magistracy, it is at this point that we begin to see the definite indications of withdrawal of those interested in the immediate introduction of New Testament standards. So Grable quits along with 15 others. They all felt betrayed by Zwingli, and they left and they started having their own meetings. After about a year of Bible study, Grable and the others conclude that faith is necessary for baptism, and in particular, repentance, and therefore, infant baptism has got to be wrong. That was their conclusion. So, he enters a public debate against Zwingli. So now it's the student coming against the master. Right? So we have Conrad Grable challenging Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich before all the people on January 17th, 1525. And the council is totally going to decide in favor of Zwingli because he's their guy. 
He's the people's priest. He's the prestigious one. He's the one that's already agreed with them to sort of take it slow and steady. Who's this hothead? Even if, even if Grable has all the biblical evidence in the world, it doesn't matter. The council is going to go with Zwingli because it's more to their advantage to do that. Now, take into consideration one other thing, which is infant baptism was how you got registered with the city. It's how you became a citizen. It's your social security card, so to speak. And so the, no government under that system is going to want people to go off the grid. They want you to get registered so that when you become of age, you pay taxes and you're a good citizen. So this idea was, was not going to last. The government was understood by them to be the weapon of the church. And so... There, there, you see what, what is kind of like a dance or a challenge back and forth a lot over the centuries between the church and the government. And it's sometimes the church is more powerful than the government, and sometimes the government is more powerful than the church. But there's always this tension throughout church history. And Zwingli's kind of riding that wave. You know, he's, he's working through the government to bring about his reforms. Conrad Grable is saying, all right, I'm going to try it. But if it doesn't work, I'm out of here. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's a real parting of the ways. And so Grable actually ends up having a daughter right about this time, which makes the issue not abstract anymore, because is he going to get her baptized or not? So on January 21st, 1525, the group meets together, and they're going to figure out what to do. And so, again, our three guys are Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock, which means blue coat, because nobody knew what his name was. They said the guy in the blue coat. But anyhow, uh, they met together on January 21st, 1525, which is a super big date for us, because it's the beginning of the Anabaptist movement. They met together in a little house, and they didn't know what to do. They felt firm in their biblical study, and yet... There was no way to bring the city into it or to convince the, the whole system. And so George Blaurock asked Conrad Grable to baptize him. Blaurock, who had been a priest, well, I'll tell you about him in a second, baptized Grable, Mons, and the others, and they pledged to live out. So that's their definitive break with Ulrich Zwingli and the other Christians. They pledged to live out the New Testament and be separate from the world. And... There might be a few exceptions to this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. Basically, this is the first free church since Constantine took over in 325. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the church and the government are one. This is the first free church. This is the first group of Christians that meets in a home in a long time and that are not on the grid. There's no income from the government to fund them which was a standard policy in every village that the, the government would pay for the church, would pay for the priest. And I'm sure there were probably some exceptions, but this, this is a huge, huge moment. Other than converts to Christianity, these would be the first adults baptized, because everyone would be baptized as a baby, but not as an adult. And they start doing this really weird thing called evangelism, which to, the, to us sounds totally normal, because we've done evangelism, we, we do evangelism, we see other people doing evangelism. But in the medieval world where everyone is born into the church, do you do evangelism? If when you're born you're, you're uh, sprinkled and pronounced a Christian, 
Who are you going to evangelize? doesn't matter how you live, you're still a Christian. This gets this whole evangelization and missionizing mentality going. He gets arrested a lot, and then in uh, 1525, he gets arrested. In 1526, he escapes. And then Conrad Grable suddenly dies from a disease, and we don't really know why or what disease. Some people speculated maybe it was the plague. Maybe it was something that he caught in his rowdy days as a young man at all these universities that finally caught up with him. There's lots of speculation. We don't really know. We just know that this uh, absolutely brilliant, somewhat hot-headed leader of these, this new faction died very young in 1526, which mo moves us on to Felix Mons. He was born in Zurich, and he died in Zurich. He was born in 1498, died in 1527. I mean, think about the age of this man when he died. How old was he? 29. Right, what was our last one? Yeah, he would have been 28. This guy dies at 29. Our next one, he makes it a little longer. He gets to, what, what is it, 38 years old? I mean, he actually makes it into his 30s. That's not the exception. That's more like the norm for Anabaptists, is they die really young. And uh, we'll see why in just a moment. So anyhow, Felix Mons, he was born in Zurich. This is just kind of a totally irrelevant fact. But Desiderius Erasmus, Henry Bullinger, who was the guy who took over for Zwingli when Zwingli died, and Felix Mons were all illegitimate sons of priests who had really great educations. <laughs> and there was actually a provision in, uh, in those times that uh, if, if you took a concubine, they would pay you more. And if you had an illegitimate child, they would give you even more money. And so... Uh, as a way to take care of them. And so sometimes it worked out in the, uh, the kid's favor. And so Felix Manns ends up with a very good education, and he becomes an expert in the Hebrew language, which today there are lots of people that could say that. Back then, that was a very unusual thing. In Greek, yeah, sure, but not in Hebrew. Hebrew was, was kind of out there. It was kind of unknown. The Jews had Hebrew but the Jews were in hiding, a lot of times persecuted, a lot of times uh, spoken evil of. And so Hebrew was kind of like a, a forbidden language in a lot of ways. And so Felix Mons goes for the Hebrew and he becomes an expert in it. In 1519, when Zwingli comes to town, Mons sees him and he says, I'm, I'm sticking with this guy. I'm going to his Bible studies. And he gets into it and he teaches the scriptures from the Hebrew Bible. In 1521, he becomes friends with Grable. And after the second disputation of Zurich in 1523, at the same time as Grable, he parts with Zwingli as well. And in 1525, he's there at that, that first church meeting and uh, is baptized by Blaurock. He gets very active in door-to-door -door evangelism. Isn't that funny? This is in the 1520s. They have door-to-door -door evangelism, which was probably super effective because it just wasn't done. You know, like today, somebody rings at your doorbell, and it's either a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. You know, either way, you're not probably all that interested. Maybe you are. But in their days, it's like, what are, you, what are you doing? We're all Christians. What are you talking about? You're going to evangelize me? And they would start to show them. Well, the Bible says, da, 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 da. These guys not only know the Bible, but they know the original languages, and people are just not accustomed to that. And they're wildly successful in helping people see what the Bible says as apart from what the Christian medieval Catholicism they knew. 
these three guys, Grable, Mons, and Blaurock, were frequently arrested together. And there's one reference I found that says there was hardly a prison in the whole area that Mons hadn't graced with his presence. Because he would get arrested, he would get out, he would preach again, he would get arrested, he would get out, he'd preach again. Just one of these incredible people that never gave up. In 1527, he was finally arrested for the last time. He was put on trial, and he is quoted as saying, No Christian should be a magistrate, nor could he use the sword to punish, which I'm sure they did not appreciate. On January 5th, 1527, his sentence was as follows. Mons shall be delivered to the executioner, who shall tie his hands, put him into a boat, take him to a lower hut, then strip his bound hands down over his knees, place a stick between his knees and arms, and thus push him into the water and let him perish in the water. Can you, can you picture that? So he's, he's, his hands are bound, and then they put them behind his, his knees and then put a stick there so that he can't straighten up, he can't kick, he can't move his arms to swim and they weighted him with stones, and they drowned him. This becomes the standard way that Protestants kill Anabaptists, is by drowning. Why do you think they would do that? But, right, because these guys are saying infant baptism is illegitimate, so you need to be baptized as an adult. So they're like, you want to be baptized as an adult? Here you go. And so they did it out of mockery. While being carried to the river, he preached to the bystanders and praised God, and this is another quote, that though he was a sinner, he had the privilege of dying for the truth. <laughs> Isn't that something? His mother and his brother were in the crowd, and they shouted encouragement to stay faithful and to not deny the Lord. His last words are reported as, Into your hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit. He was the first one, the Protestants, this is the people associated with Luther and Zwingli and later Calvin, this whole movement is the first one that they killed, first Christian they killed, what we call a martyr. So the methods for executing people, just, just to get clear on this, were if you were a Protestant and you were killing an Anabaptist, you drowned them. If you were a Catholic and you were killing an Anabaptist, you burned him at the stake. And then a lot of times the government, especially if you had more prestige or more honor or you were from a noble class, they would behead you. That would be the best way to go, so to speak, because it's, it's quick, it's, it's painless. The Catholics, were they really preferred the burning at the stake. And uh, we'll see that with George Blaurock. So George Blaurock, this is a very colorful guy. I can't help but like him, but also I'm kind of glad he doesn't come here on Sunday, because he would definitely disturb things. I don't know what he would find, but he would find something and he would cause a ruckus. So he's a co-founder of the Swiss Brethren with Grable and Mons. These are the three uh, main leaders. There, there are plenty of other names. I'm just sticking with these three, just uh, so it's not too many names. He's educated at Leipzig, but he's not really a scholar. He's a priest. He's a priest, and he converted to Reformed ideas, and he married. So he's a married priest who is still serving God with all his heart, still handling the priestly duties of being a pastor, taking care of the people, but he's also married, and he's adopted these new ideas about Christianity. In 1524, he comes to Zurich. He rejects the mass, images, infant baptism. He's a large man. He's intimidating. And once he has his conversion, and, and this split happens with Zwingli, and they form this new group, 
he starts going to church services, and he would interrupt the church services. Did I mention he's a large, intimidating guy? So he'd interrupt the, the church services and take over the pulpit. And then he would preach that, you know, he would preach the truth as he understood it. And everyone would be, like, amazed by the boldness of, of this man. And they would convert. He was, he's also the, the first adult to be baptized who wasn't a convert from another religion, uh, on, at least that I know of. In 1527, when Mons was martyred, Blaurock was also arrested with him. Uh, you remember Mons, I just told you about, he was carried over the river and he was drowned with his hands tied. Blaurock was, was in that same situation, but they decided rather than doing the same thing to him, they would just beat him severely with rods. So they severely beat George Blaurock with rods, and they expelled him, which is actually very nice of them compared to what they're doing to other people um, that he uh, ends up surviving. He, he gets kicked out of Switzerland in 1527, and he never goes back. He evangelizes tirelessly in many other cities, and in 1529, he becomes a pastor of a church in Tyrol in western Austria. The pastor before him, a guy named Michael Kirschner, was burned at the stake. So they needed a new pastor. So George Blaurock said, I'll do it. Now, who do you think, who do you think uh, killed the previous pastor? The Catholics, right. He was very successful, George Blaurock, in ministry in 1529. He baptized many people and founded churches, but eventually he was arrested again and burned at the stake on September 6, 1529. He preached to the bystanders on the way to his execution, and he wrote a hymn three weeks before he died. He wrote this hymn called, Gott, dich will ich loben. Lord God, I, I will praise you. This is, these are the words of his hymn. Lord God, how do I praise thee from hence and evermore that thou real faith didst give me by which I thee may know. Forget me not, O Father, be near me evermore. Thy spirit shield and teach me that in afflictions great they comfort I may ever prove and valiantly may obtain the victory in this fight. Just give you a flavor of George Blaurock. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll take a look at Michael Sattler, the incredible debacle at Munster, as well as Menno Simons, the founder of the Mennonites. In our next chapter of the history of the last 500 years. Before signing off, just wanted to read out a comment by Carlos on the previous class, the second class on Luther and Calvin. He writes, reformers like Luther and Calvin were closer to the Catholic Church than to humanists like Erasmus. Both replaced one tyranny with another. The tyranny of the Bible instead of the tyranny of the Church. Though, of course, it was the Bible according to Luther or the Bible according to Calvin. And then he provides a link to some sort of an article on the subject. I think what Carlos is saying here is that Really, Luther and Calvin and the entire Protestant Reformation wasn't so much interested in freedom of conscience as they were in replacing the old authority structure with a new authority structure that forcibly or coercively instituted their 
understanding of Scripture. Whereas humanists, who are Catholics, uh, were adopting a position that was much more like what we see later on with the Sicinians and a lot of the evangelical rationalists, in that it called people to voluntary assembly and to intellectual freedom. Uh, this is what, of course, we have in, our, in most of our world today. So uh, thanks for pointing that out, Carlos. Uh, certainly is a, uh, an interesting point you make there. And we'll definitely see, well, we saw the beginnings of how that played out for the Swiss Anabaptists today. And we'll, we'll continue to see how that played out in our episode for next week as well. So thanks for tuning in. If you would like to add your voice to the mix, come on over to restitutio.org and look for podcast 118, uh, Zwingli and the Swiss Anabaptists, and you can add your comment as well. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.